This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. My main point I want you to be able to walk away with today is that he would start with you or he would start with us. We've looked at a couple different passages um, through this series called What Would Jesus Do? And each time we've seen how Jesus would engage individuals or small groups based on their background and how they were uh, speaking to Jesus and uh, really what they relied on in their lives. I think if, if I could picture it most clearly in my own mind, what I would see it is is this. Religious leaders thought that what they did was good enough and those whom Jesus engaged to call the sick and the sinners uh, knew that what they did, were doing was not good enough. And because of that, it led to humility and reception of who Jesus was because they knew they needed something else. The religious leaders, because they thought that what they had was good enough, didn't think they needed Jesus. And therefore, Jesus consistently calls them out to recognize uh, that they do need Jesus and to see with the eyes of Jesus, speak with the words of Jesus, and live with the actions of Jesus to be able to love the world like Jesus did. Now, I, I, uh, I do not have time this morning to walk through John 3 entirely, but I want to remind you of the story of Nicodemus. Uh, he's a man that's mentioned in John chapter 3, chapter 7, and chapter 19. Uh, in each one of these chapters, it's mentioned that he's the one that came to Jesus at night. And so we know it's the same Nicodemus all three times. In the first one, he seeks Jesus out for truth. He's asking him about what Jesus is there for. That's in chapter 3. In chapter 7, he's telling the uh, other religious leaders, you need to give Jesus a chance at a fair trial to see what he's here for and to hear from himself. And so what, what, what uh, Nicodemus is calling the religious leaders to is what he did in chapter 3. He sought truth. Now he wants other religious leaders to seek truth too. In chapter 19, as Jesus is being buried, uh, Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. The, uh, 75 pounds is enough to be representative of Nicodemus, Nicodemus proclaiming that Jesus is king. It would be what you would bring a king. Now, we don't know from John whether or not he believed in Jesus. We don't see those particular words. We don't see Nicodemus following Jesus in John. We don't see those words there. We do know from extra biblical resources, which are good and useful for historical purposes, a book called the Talmud, which is a collection of sayings, of Jewish sayings in particular, from Jesus' time into about the 16th, 17th century A.D., We see in there the historical account of a man named Nicodemus. He lived in the first century. Uh, He was in the Sanhedrin, just like Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. And as he uh, goes throughout his life, there's a point in his life where he loses all of his fame and fortune. He's removed from the Sanhedrin, and he loses all the finances he has. Now, obviously, he had money because he provided 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to Jesus when he was died at his burial. But at some point, he lost all that fame and fortune. Why? 
We don't know exactly why, but Richard Bauckham would argue, a great historian of the early first century church, uh, would argue that this same Nicodemus is the one who was presented in John chapter 3, 7, and 19, who was also the one who was in the Sanhedrin who lost his fame and fortune. And most likely when you put all the pieces together, it looks like Nicodemus at some point followed Jesus in his life. We don't know this for certain. I'm not trying to make any statements like this, but what I am trying to show you is this. Sometimes religious leaders are different and they don't rely on their good works. Nicodemus is an example of this. He at least comes to Jesus seeking out truth. Most religious leaders, when they come to Jesus, seek out to persecute Jesus, uh, to trap him, to get him in a place where he says something where they can take him out, right? We've seen this consistently throughout this series called What Would Jesus Do? So in this scenario, Nicodemus comes to Jesus for truth, but in most times, religious leaders are coming to Jesus to persecute them. This is going to help us as we walk through this passage and we see uh, uh, the, the religious leaders, uh, the Jews in particular, those leaders, and how they react to what Jesus does. Look at John chapter 5, verse 1 through 16. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Now just stop there for a moment. Think about Jesus' interaction up to this point with this man. Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? His response is, I can't get into that water. Do you see this? All of his hope was in the effects of a springing up in this water. If that water could spring up and create enough effect to heal him, then he'd be able to walk out of there. He totally wholly believed that this water would save him. How many times have you engaged with the gospel? Someone, and their response to you is, no, I don't believe that he is the Savior, or no, I don't believe he, he's not my hope. I believe in other things. A lot of times we think like they've na- the natural response, and what we'd almost assume that Jesus is going to do is, okay, well, if you're not going to believe in me, then I'll walk away. It's almost our natural instinct in church world today, in American evangelicalism too, as well, to see the world and sort of, okay, if you're not going to believe, then I'm not going to associate myself with you either. If you're not going to believe, then I'm not going to push anymore. Jesus, I, I think there's a, this is a, in, an unbelievable display of God's grace and mercy to this man. The Messiah in front of him. And he says, I have no one to put me into the pool. Verse 8, get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. 
Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I think what we expect for this man is that once he says, I can't get into this pool, that Jesus would first want to correct his thoughts, right? We want to correct wrong thinking. We want to correct wrong actions. We want to correct um, uh, what they are doing that is wrong, the, the false hope that they have. We want, we want some form of guilt and conviction in people's lives to draw them near to Jesus. I want you to see what Jesus does. Immediately after the man saying that he puts the hope in the water, Jesus heals him. He says, my hope is in this water. And Jesus says, get up. Because our God is a God of drawing people into humility by grace and mercy and miracles, not by guilt and conviction. Now, I can't say that holistically for every single example that we see in Scripture. That's not for every single person. Paul's a little bit different, even though I do think that was a miracle with him. I think there are certain situations in Scripture where we see uh, conviction stirring in people's heart. But what I'm showing you is, because we're asking this question, what did Jesus do? We are asking literally, who, how did Jesus engage one person? How did he engage a small group of people? What did he say to them? And across the board, it is consistent. Jesus drew people to him through his mercy and miracles. Jesus was drawing people to him by the way that he was interacting with them through mercy and miracles. So I want you to see the difference between Nicodemus who comes to Jesus for truth, and these religious leaders who are coming to Jesus to persecute him. You see, because Nicodemus is seeking the truth while the Jews at the pool are seeking adherence to the law. They want perfection. When your desire for perfection exceeds your desire for Jesus, you will always get legalism. When your desire for perfection exceeds your desire for Jesus, you will always get legalism. So do you want Jesus or do you want laws? Now we really have to ask this for our family, for our friends, for our spouses, for children, for uh, the world in general, the culture that we see around us, and for within the church, we have to honestly ask, do you want our world to fall in love with Jesus? And if so... Will you stop asking them to leave their mat on the ground and start showing them Jesus? Come on, church. Can we stop asking people to leave their mat on the ground and start showing them Jesus? You see, Jesus drew people in by the goodness of the gospel and not the effectiveness of his laws. Are we trying to draw people to Jesus through rules and overcoming depravity in our culture? Or are we trying to draw people to Jesus through the good news of Jesus Christ? Consistently across the board, Jesus' relationship with people has been to use mercy and miracles to draw them to humility and following Him. But with religious leaders and those whom relied on what they did, instead of recognizing that what they did was not enough, Jesus consistently rejects and calls them to change their ways and to look like Jesus looks, to speak like Jesus spoke, to act like Jesus acted. So we see Jesus rejecting those who are prideful and condemning of others. And we see him extending mercy and miracle to those who are humble and would follow him. So if we're going to seriously ask what would Jesus do, we must answer it by looking at what Jesus actually did 
and looking at what he actually did, he extended mercy and miracles to the humble in heart and rejection, rejection to the prideful. Just that, that, that's a consistency we see throughout how Jesus interacts throughout the Gospels. If we take that and we try to apply that to our lives and try to make that a little bit more practical, here's what we see. Jesus puts people before policies. He loves you, not just what you do. He wants your heart, not just your following of directions. And religious people will consistently put policies over people. Did you notice that in verse 11 and 12? Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. It says, he replied, uh, the man who told me, pick up your mat and walk. Uh, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Okay, so that was the guy who was, uh, uh, the miracle was performed for. Uh, and he says specifically, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Now look at this response from the religious leaders. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? Do you notice what they missed? And this is what happens so often if we don't get, if we're not careful and if we leave the goodness of the gospel and the grace of the gospel and we leave that and move forward into only works and, and doing a church world thing where it's like we just do and do and do. What happens is we'll leave the gospel and we completely leave what Jesus did. Because here's what Jesus did. It says, the man who made me well. Do you see that? They dropped that. They drop that and the only thing they respond to him is, pick up your mat and walk. Because the thing they were concerned with was Jesus and this man following policies and procedures. And what Jesus was concerned with was saving this man. They drop the healing. They pick up the breaking of this procedure. And they emphasize policies over people. And we have to be so careful we have to be so careful that we don't do this in the world too. We have to be so careful that we don't interact with our world speaking and acting in a similar way to say, I mean, here, here's, the, here's like the, I think this is like the clearest example I can give. It's like if you go out in, in the culture and you're sharing the gospel and somebody's like, man, I believe. The grace of God and the love of God has just overwhelmed me. They, they come into a space where Christians are around and they're like, man, God has changed my life. God, I saw God's love and God's mercy. I felt God's love and mercy. I know that God loves me and God has saved me through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And you look at them and you go, yeah, but, but all that sin in your life. But I know what you were doing when you said you believed in Jesus. I know what you've been doing and I know what you are doing and I know, and I look at you and can see what you're doing right now. Can you imagine these people looking at this man who had just, he'd been paralyzed for 38 years. He stands up, walks up to them and, he, and they're like, hey, who told you you could pick up your mat? Can you imagine as Christians, somebody, a new believer coming up to you and saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. He's transformed my life. I believe he is the Savior. And you looking at them and saying, yeah, but I know what you do. We've got to be so careful that we are not looking at what people do, but instead helping people look at what Jesus has done. Now, I do have questions for Jesus in this passage. I'm not sure... Uh, I don't know if when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to, be able to ask Jesus questions. Um, I don't think we have clarity on that in Scripture. Uh, but if we did, I might ask him this question because I'm, I'm interested in why is Jesus at the pool in Bethesda anyways? I don't know if anybody else asked that question. I don't know if you wondered why are the religious people there? 
Um, I don't know if you wondered why didn't, why didn't he heal everybody else there. I have all these questions that I want to ask Jesus, but I'm sort of hesitant to ask these questions because I feel like the moment I say, Jesus, why were you at the pool of Bethesda? He's going to look at me and go, why are you not at the pool of Bethesda? <laughs> it's like, whoa, you're right. Okay, go to the pool of Bethesda. I feel like if I found this, uh, this man who was healed and walked away after 38 years, I would want to go up to him and be like, why did you tattletale on Jesus? Y'all are with me, right? I've been thinking this all week. Like, what are, you, what are you doing, man? This dude just healed you, and then you go over there. Here's what I think happened. I think he was healed. And I think he goes to the religious leaders, and he's like, of course, the religious leaders are going to be amped up about this. The Messiah's here. The Son of God's here. The Son of Man's here. Like, they're going to go preach this. They're going to tell everybody. Everybody's going to celebrate these things. And the religious leaders, he goes up to the religious leaders, and like, man, that, that guy healed me. And they're like, no, 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 who told you to pick up your mat? Church, we have got to make sure that we are not like the religious leaders. When people come to faith in Jesus, we're not going, yeah, 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 you picked up, you picked up your mat. We've got to make sure that we don't focus on policies rather than people's transformation. And the reason I can say this is because that's what Jesus did. He extended mercy and miracles to people and that drew them into transformation. You want to talk about a person's life that's been transformed? Talk to somebody who was paralyzed for 38 years and now walks because of a man named Jesus. What kind of transformation can that lead to? Jesus didn't walk up to him and when he said, my hope is in that, from what we know, he doesn't, he doesn't go, my hope is in that pool. And Jesus goes, your hope is in that pool? Well, fine then. Have fun. Like, I feel like that's sometimes what we look at the world like. Well, the world's just so depraved, so messed up, and, and it wants all these different things, and it has all these different likes, and it believes all these different things. And so because of that, I'm just not going to go to it. I'm just going to let it do its own thing. And Jesus is like, get up and walk. There's something about the mercy and miracles and love and grace of Jesus that draws people who recognize that they have nothing else to follow after Jesus. So if we ask the question, what would Jesus do? The answer is he would go to the pool, he'd rescue sinners, he'd stir up the religious people, and he'd heal the sick people. Like the best I can tell after examining these passages throughout the Gospels is that Jesus is performing miracles and stirring up controversy for the specific purpose of humbling people into repentance. Did you, have, have you thought about this too? Why is Jesus stirring up controversy? We've like briefly touched on this in the series, What Would Jesus Do?, but why is Jesus continually stirring up controversy? All Jesus had to do was say, get up and walk. Why does he say, take up your mat? All he had to do is wait a little bit longer. Why does he say to unravel your hand, the shriveled hand, of the man that he healed, the paralytic that he healed? Why does Jesus always do this on Sabbath? I think it's because of this. Now, this is best I can tell from what Jesus is doing and how he's speaking and, and what he says he's come to do. I think what he wants to do is show the religious leaders and stir up controversy in their heart so that they have to face the reality that they are more concerned with policies than people. The controversy forces them to see that they are more concerned with this man taking up his mat than him walking. And so if you're asking the question, like, why is Jesus doing, why is Jesus always um, uh, forcing them to think through this? It's because you got Nicodemus who seeks out truth. And then you got other religious leaders who continually condemn Jesus for what he's doing. 
And the reason I, I find this absolutely fascinating, and I want you to journey through this with me, is how does Jesus lead people into repentance? We talk about this a lot in America. People pray for repentance throughout America. People pray for people to repent and, and change. And Jesus says he comes to preach that people would repent and believe in the kingdom of God for it is at hand, like it's nearby. It's coming, so people ought to repent and believe. Um, in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, it says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In chapter 15, verse 7, it says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. In Luke chapter 15, verse 10, it says, I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. We see this uh, three times there. We see Jesus in, in uh, Mark telling us that he's preaching repentance and, and baptizing for repentance. We see uh, only probably, uh, I think it's less than 15 uses throughout the gospel of this word repent. Uh, especially coming out of the mouth of Jesus, speaking to other people. But we do not see him speak this to sinners. I, look at, it says in, in chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then when Jesus goes and actually speaks to, uh, to, the, to the sinners and to the sick, he does not actually say Repent. I'm fascinated by it. I don't know if you're with me on this, but I'm fascinated by, by it because of this. I think Jesus was drawing people into repentance by miracles and mercy and the grace and the love that he displayed. How do we draw people into repentance? Because there's multiple ways to draw people to repentance. There's, there's multiple ways to get people to think different. Re repentance is not uh, changing action, it's changing mind and heart. Uh, metanoia, the, the, uh, the background to uh, re repentance in Greek, is about mind and heart being transformed, not your actions being transformed. And so for Jesus, it's always been about your heart and your mind being transformed, not your actions. But we so often want it to be about actions and not our mind and our heart that it makes sense that the first thing we want to do is tell the world that is lost and dying and see the evil in our world and we want to speak into it. Uh, uh, stop doing what you're doing. Stop acting the way you're acting. Stop performing these things that you're performing, when Jesus came, he simply provided mercy and miracles, and those mercy and miracles drew them into repentance. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you strategy, and I'm not trying to tell you what you ought to do. I'm just showing you the question we've been asking is, what would Jesus do? And what he did do was he provided uh, mercy and miracles so that people might change their hearts and their minds to live for him. And I hope that we will follow Jesus in doing this. There's a world out there that cannot stop doing what they're doing without the power of the Spirit. And without the power, the, then they're never going to receive the Spirit without Jesus Christ's uh, life in them, without Him forgiving and sending the Spirit into their hearts. And so the more we call them to live by what we do, the more we display our legalism in their lives. And I want to challenge you with this. Before we look at the world and call them out for what they're doing, we've got to look at ourselves and what we're doing. I think, and this is why, because there's a difference between calling someone out for relying on their works and calling someone to repent from their sins. You see, Jesus calls the, isn't this interesting? Jesus says repentance is for the sinners, not for the healthy. And then when he's with those whom say they're healthy, he calls them out. 
And when he's with those who are sick and sinners, he doesn't call them out. And I'm like, Jesus, how does this work? And I think it's because there's a difference between uh, calling people out for sin and drawing them into repentance. There's a difference between these two things. And it seems that Jesus is often calling people into repentance by his mercy and miracles if they are humble. And if they are prideful, Jesus is often calling them to repentance by addressing the pride of relying upon themselves. This is a consistent thread I've seen throughout the Gospels, and I encourage you to look for yourselves to engage it in Jesus' interactions with people, small groups, one-on-ones, and how he actually applied the theology that he brought. Because repentance is not about our actions, but instead our mind and our heart. It's a change internally that drives a change externally. The religious leaders wanted a change externally without a change internally. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is that what we're asking of the world too? Are we asking the world to have an external change without an internal change? Are we asking the world to have an external change without an internal change before we have an internal change? Which is even more dangerous. That's exactly what the religious leaders did. This morning I want to ask you to look within yourself first. I think it makes total sense why Jesus didn't preach, repent, and believe to everyone that he sees. Like, I don't, I'd almost expect every time Mark uh, um, addresses somebody, like a sinner or somebody sick, I would almost expect the first thing Jesus says to be like, repent and believe, based on American evangelicalism, not based on what, who Jesus is. But now as we, as we look more into who Jesus is and what Jesus actually did, the first words he says is not repent and believe, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, the opportunity for him to say it. Instead, he's blessing people. Because Jesus sees the heart, not just the actions. It makes sense why he doesn't tell all the sinners that he meets to change what they do. Because as we look at the life of Jesus, we see him draw people to a transformed heart and mind, not actions. This is not abandoning transformation. It's not abandoning a world that is drawing after Jesus. It's a different way to draw the world to Jesus. It's the way that Jesus chose to draw the world to him. Not by condemnation, verse uh, 17 of chapter 3 in John says but by forgiveness. You see, the way he changes their hearts and minds is primarily through being present, through protecting the vulnerable, and through performing miracles. This is what we see Jesus consistently doing. And we have to make sure that we don't leave this discussion, leave this passage, without first examining our own repentance before calling others to repent. Maybe today you move from one indulgence to another hoping to quench the never-ending desires of your flesh to have satisfaction, but you leave unsatisfied and craving more to the point where your life is more about the next indulgence than giving thanks for the last one. Maybe you go to church and do all the right things at church and then go home and your kids are scared of you, your wife puts up with you, and you speak to coworkers like the only thing that is going to save us from this fallen world is fallen human beings elected to an office or your fallen self running the rat race and going harder to make more money and do more and provide more to save them. Maybe this morning you gossip about others because without chaos there's no need for control and you need to have control 
Maybe you demand your wife to be something that you aren't willing to be, or maybe you demand your husband to be something that you aren't willing to be, or your children. Maybe you want social media uh, status. You want to have a representation on social media and have your identity noticed on social media by what you wear, by your trendy workouts or healthy lunches that you eat or your cool editing on videos of your friends hanging out or deep down. uh, The reality is that deep down you've created an alter ego for everyone to see that isn't actually who you are. That is literally the definition of the religious leaders aside from them not having social media. Maybe your life has left carnage from the toxicity of your relationships with friends and family and others. You've been pointing the finger at others for the reason for broken relationships and never admitted that you bring unrepentant sin and unforgiven hurts into every relationship you have. Now here's the thing. I'm not trying to call us all out because I spent this whole message telling you that it's about grace and mercy and, and miracles. Instead, what I'm trying to show you is that we can so quickly leave the gospel and move to our actions that we forget that the gospel is the, fir- the thing that transformed us in the first place. Think about this. As long as we talk about the sins of the world and not the sins of the church, then it's easy to put emphasis on the actions of sin and leave the discussion of ourselves. The chaos around us is in control because we are in control when we don't have to look within and recognize the chaos that is within. The first step to following after Jesus has to be consistently humility. The greatest barrier between you following Jesus and turning away is humility. We know this because many believe in Jesus but can't follow him. The demons believe in Jesus and shudder. We have consistent examples of people, uh, even Nicodemus at first seems to not follow right after Jesus. We, we wonder and we ask and we look at these different examples like the rich young ruler last week. What is the barrier between you following after Jesus? And it's often humbly saying, Jesus, what you want is better. It's so hard to say. And the truth of the situation is, I would know that many of you struggle with these things because I do too. It's the moment that we act like the world is the only one who struggles with sin and forget that we struggle with sin too, that we put all the emphasis on the world and none of the emphasis on ourselves and we're able to walk away going, man, I look good, I went to church, I did all these things, everything's good, but look how bad and evil the world is. And I hope that as we look more deeply into the sins and the temptations and the hurts of our lives, whether they're unrepentant sin or unforgiven hurts, when we look into our hearts and see these things, it will make us, force us to look back at the goodness of the gospel, the grace and mercy and miracle that God performed in our hearts and lives in the first place. May our temptations and sins and frustrations with what we've done and who we are not lead us to guilt, but instead lead us to grace. And as we do that for our lives and look within our lives, may we, as we experience grace for ourselves, share that same grace with our world. I know these aren't the common sins we talk about in church because it's easier to act like the problem is just simply outside of the world, uh, outside in the world, and not us religious people. But I think that Jesus would disagree. Have y'all thought about that? When you think about the issues in the world, do you think that the problem is the church or the world? It seems that Jesus would disagree. When he came, he knew what the problem was. 
the religious leaders were putting rules and regulations on people without leading them to him. We have got to be careful as the evangelical church in America or whatever you want to call us, you as a Christian bonded together in here performing the Lord's Supper together, whatever you want to call us, as we bond together, we have to be careful that we're not just looking at the world and telling them to obey our rules and regulations so they look good and pretty and our culture is something that we enjoy and can watch and be like, yeah, yeah, look at how great our culture is. But really deep down and within, in the internal heart and even in our hearts, there's been no transformation. We have to be careful that we don't look at the world and expect them to do something they never can do without the grace and mercy of Jesus. Because that's why Jesus came to the religious leaders confronting them. In 2000, I was 10 years old. 70% of America claimed to be a member of the church. Today, it's 50%. It's not the world's fault. Jesus isn't weak. We need to do something. And that something is not just looking at the world, blaming them for our problems or blaming them for the world's problems. Our job is to show them that despite the world's problems and struggles, Jesus loves them. The same way Jesus came. You see, the first step in transforming what you see around you is transforming what you see within you. If you want healthy friendships, look inside. If you want healthy kids, look inside. If you want a healthy church, look inside. If you want a healthy workplace, look inside you. And if the majority of what you do is complain about what you see outside of you, you might need to look inside of you. If the majority of what we see outside of us is something that frustrates us, it might not be because of what is outside of us. It might be because of what is inside of us. I've had to do this. Like I said, the reason I can mention these struggles and temptations is because it's things that I've had to work through. I've had to fight through. Not every single one, but there are things. Last week alone, I spent time with my D group, and I've told you this, confessed temptation and sin to them. I want you to know that because I don't want to have a church culture where we think that nobody can admit that they have to confess sin and temptation. It's ridiculous. There's nobody in here perfect, and the moment you think you are, you aren't. And the moment you think you are, Jesus is the one who's rejecting you. I don't say that lightly. What I mean literally is I hope that we have a humble posture to be able to say, look, I've got I to gotta admit temptation and, and, and sin too. And I need people that can walk through that with me. What I saw in my life I didn't like. And I'm learning to be different. Not by my power, not by my strength, but by the mercy of God. And he didn't draw me because of guilt and conviction. He drew me because of grace and mercy. I didn't need one more person to tell me what I was doing wrong. I knew it. What I needed a person somebody to tell me was, there's a Savior who loved me and died for me. So I'm learning. And I don't know how all this flushes out. Somebody asked me after the second service, well, how do we live this out practically? Man, I wish there was a manual. Like, there's not. Here's what I know. God saved me. And I'm going to tell other people about it. And if that takes 10 years, it takes 10 years. If it takes one month, it's one month. I don't know all the answers to why sometimes Jesus tells the disciples to wipe the dust off of their feet. And then sometimes he sits with the sinners and uh, while they drink and the tax collectors, while they steal money. I don't know. But what I do know is the Spirit of God lives in me, moving in me. And I pray that God would lead me to do what is right in every single situation. I can't tell you what to do exactly. 
but I can tell you what God has done in me. And I hope that you can tell others the same. You see, I've learned this truth. When there's chaos around you, there's probably chaos within you. To live in a world of chaos, it makes sense. It makes sense that we aren't going to transform it by having chaos in the church, in our families, in our personal lives. It makes sense when the church is full of chaos that the world would be full of chaos. So let's look at our hearts. Because when there's chaos within you, watch chaos occur around you. If we want to transform this world, it's got to start with us. That's what Jesus was all about. It's what Jesus did. When you ask, what would Jesus do? The answer is this. He would start with you. So as the band comes, I want to speak this passage over you. Psalm 51, verse 17. It says, the sacrificing pleasing to God, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Before God, he's not asking for perfection. He's asking for humility. He's not asking that you have it all together. He's asking that you recognize that he is the one who has it all together, that he knows what he's doing and is in control. In Psalm 51, same uh, 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 chapter, in verse 12 and 13, it says, Restore the joy of your salvation to me. May that be the prayer of our hearts, that God would restore his joy to us. The joy of our salvation that God has done in our lives, it, it, it continues with this, And sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. It's only when God has transformed our lives that we go and transform others. If we've not looked within, let's look within. If we've looked within, let's return to the gospel. Because it's not your works or how angry you were at sin or how guilty you felt or the condemnation in your stomach or what it felt like that day when that preacher was talking and your stomach was churning. None of that is what saved you in the first place. It was the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And if the gospel is what saved you, let me ask you a question, church. What's going to save the world? And the answer always has to be the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Because of his life, death, and resurrection. If you're going to say something to the world right now, say the gospel. Speak it. Preach it. Live it. Speak the gospel. So if you will join with me in prayer, I'm going to give you a challenge with your eyes closed and this, this. And for those joining us online, I'm going to give you this challenge as well. Would you look inside, not outside, for a certain period of time? And seriously, with your eyes closed, I just want to ask this challenge over you. Would you consider those things which are pouring into your mind and life that are causing you to look externally and be frustrated? and be angry at the sin in the world, would you for a season pause that and look within? Because the church in America right now needs to look internal before it can go external. We have issues inside. We personally, we familiarly, and we as a church need to look at what's going on in our own hearts before we can speak to the world. And second, would you seek a season of restoration before you go to restore others? Maybe you have spent time humbling, being uh, humbled by God, seeking out transformation of sin. God has been faithful to bring about transformation. And right now you just need to be restored to that salvation and that goodness of the gospel to know and to speak and to live with the grace and mercy of Jesus. 
Would you seek a season of restoration before you go to restore others? Seek a season of transformation before you go to transform others. Look inside your own heart. What is God doing? Let me pray for you. Father, would you change our hearts? Would you humble us? Like the man at the pool of Bethesda, see us, even despite our failures, despite us trusting in things other than you, would you forgive us? Would you heal us? Would you restore us? And Father, as you transform our hearts, would you help us to go to transform others? Father, as we look within us personally and as a family and as friends and as a church, would you change our hearts towards one another and then ultimately towards this world, that we might see the world with your eyes, speak with your words, and live with your actions full of mercy and miracles that lead to repentance. Father, help us to lead with love, not repentance, just like your son displayed for us. pray, God, that you would transform our hearts first. We love you in your son's name. Amen.
questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.